Hello everyone and welcome to Manufacturing the Future. Today we're talking about advanced coatings, a subject familiar to many in the automotive, aerospace, energy, and the process industries among others. With me are Andrew Tudhope, Vice President of the Duralar Technologies Division of AGM, and Dr. Tom Casterly, Chief Technology Officer with Duralar. Andy and Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you, thanks for having us. Thank you, welcome. Uh, to kick off a little bit, Andy, tell me a little bit about Duralar. Well, Duralar's, um, I formed the company back in 2014 and uh, with the idea of utilizing a hollow cathode technology that I had previously invented along with Tom back in 2004 at a previous company. Um, and so we've really developed that. Uh, we've we've uh, grown into different markets um, and then firearms market and the uh, automotive space and things. And then we, we later were acquired last year by AGM. Um, to just add to their portfolio of products. And your Tom, uh, tell me a little bit about coatings as a concept. Now we, we tend, I think people who are not deep in the industry tend to think of this as, uh, as paint, as something that you apply onto a surface. Maybe you're thinking about a mechanical bond between the substrate and, and the coating on top. Some of us think of it as a, a surface treatment where we're basically trying to sort of perfuse something at the atomic level into the, in, into the matrix or the base at this point. What, what do we mean when we talk about coatings from your perspective? Well, I can. I think I can start with that. From a coating, from our perspective, we we have a very technical coating, so it's not paint. Um, it's it's very hard and durable. It's um, it, it can apply to a lot of different technologies or a lot a lot of different applications. Um, but it's really a, a technical slash decorative coating, so it can be used in applications where the 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 cosmetic factor looks and matters, but also where it, the wear function is uh, needed. 50 years ago, if I had a worn crankshaft, I would send it to a special shop and they would plasma spray or they would hard chrome a journal and then grind it back to, to the original size at that point. How, how does that sort of legacy technology compare to the kind of things you're doing today? So we're doing stuff more on a surface modification level. So what we do is we take a, an existing uh, conductive substrate. So we could primarily coat uh, steels, uh, stainless and otherwise other alloys, titanium, aluminum, uh, and we, ch we modify the surface by creating a metallurgical bond uh, to the surface. So a lot, of, a lot of substances have native oxides or other things. Some are protective oxides. We can utilize those and then grow a, grow a hard protective coating on top. Um, we're, not, we're not building up uh, coatings like a plasma spray uh, and building up, you know, replacing millimeters of, of material. Uh, but what we will do is we'll take that crankshaft new and we'll put our type of, we'll put a coating like ours on top of it and it'll never be replaced. Uh, it'll run forever. Uh, and not only will it, uh, the wear, resist the wear, uh, the, our coatings have uh, super smooth uh, surface finish conformal to the coating. So we've got like this micro conformality uh, to whatever the surface finishes of the, of the original part. But also we have this durable uh, lubrication. So it's a self-lubricating coating. Uh, tribal film is formed and we get this low friction, which enhances efficiency. So we get kind of the win-win of low wear and enhanced uh, friction capability. Is there a dimensional change in the part at this point? Uh, if I pick up a micrometer, am I gonna notice something post-treatment that's bigger than it was before? We have the capability to, to tune the process and to tune the coatings to meet the needs of the application. Some coatings may only need one to two microns. So we're talking something where uh, a, a mic outside mic would have to be, you know, for, you ha would have to get down to the 10,000 to, to get there and only then measure it. Um, but, uh, for a, we also do plasma nitriding, uh, as well, uh, with, a, with our advanced hollow cathode technology, which allows, allows for a much faster rate, uh, uh, of both the 
nitriding of the surface as well as our deposition processes on top. Um, so we, we can tailor that from something you wouldn't measure or would, very, would need precise instrumentation to measure to where we can put on two, three thou, depending on the application, uh, if it calls for it. Now, we're, we're talking about this in uh, from a coding perspective. A coding, uh, we're thinking about either a uh, sort of mechanical lock or a, or a wetting process with a, a substrate. And we're also talking about things like nitriding or things where we're actually trying to diffuse something atomic le uh, level, you know, deep into the substrate here. Is are, are both those things happening here? Is one happening more than the other? How can we think of what's happening sort of at the molecular level? So at the molecular level, what we're actually doing is we are uh, we get about 14, you know, 10, 10 to 20 nanometers worth of intermixing of our what we call our adhesion layer or our bond layer uh, and make a metallurgical bond to the substrate. So unlike a plasma spray where you've got this heavy blasting to create this interlocking adhesion or for a spun uh, a spun plastic coating that needs some mechanical bond, uh, our coatings are metallurgically adhered to the substrate. Uh, forming uh, forming a metal or uh, dopant bond, and our our adhesion strength is is quite good, uh, which is one of the critical things. It's the most critical thing for a coating. A coating can be as hard as you like, but if it doesn't stick to what you put it on, it doesn't matter. Um, so, uh, but our our coatings do have a metallurgical bond rather than relying on mechanical bonding. Andy, I'll throw this one at you. Is that um, a quarter of a century ago, when guys like me were in university labs in a basement fooling around with things like transient liquid phase bonding, a major issue that I discovered was the mismatch in coefficient of thermal expansion between the substrate and the material I'm trying to bond to it. And the result is we would try and do things like tuned interlayers to try and get a concentration gradient across the interface, you know, in a way to prevent, you know, from thermal effects from, from, from cracking the thing. That is a damned difficult, you know, process to manage. Is concentration an issue? Are there concentration gradients across your interface? Yeah, there is. There's layers of stress that are built up in the coating. And so, uh, you know, Tom being the uh, our, our genius in-house uh, really develops the, a way to create the bond and then build stress into the into the coating such that we can ad adhere to those kind of issues. Now, you mentioned st stress. Is, it, is, is stress a good thing or a bad thing here? If I shot peanut part, I'm putting a compressive stress in intentionally. Well, it's it's it, we're doing mostly a diamond-based coatings or carbon-based coatings, which in, in inherently have a lot of stress. And so we, uh, one of the things we're doing is trying to alleviate the stress. But that stress actually creates that hardness as well. So it's a, it's a, you know you, you need it, but you got you got to deal with the uh, the issues that come with it. And and we do see both we see benefits of both sides. We've done uh, coatings on steel, and we've done fatigue tests, and we get the same and actually a better. Uh, enhancement to fatigue life uh, than just a shot peening to put compressive stress on the outside with the DLC uh, right. or our not it's a it's a carbon-based coating in this case uh, but it's not not it's, it doesn't fall in the same family of a, of a traditional DLC um, but that's the closest thing what people understand uh, looking at it um, analytically um, our uh, so we do get that enhanced fatigue life uh, as a function of that compressive stress that's applied to the substrate um, we also have the capability to, as Andy was mentioning, engineer the stresses in the coating by understanding the material properties and uh, to mitigate any challenges that might occur by growing a hard coating very thick, um, because many some applications require uh, uh, you know infinite lifetime uh, where you know there there's a interplay between coating thickness and uh, total lifetime uh, for wear high wear applications. So there's, there's that ability to manage that stress within the coating as well. Tom, is there a ductility price to be paid for applying these coatings at this point? Is this stuff going to spall or, or, or fracture? Uh, depending on the coating type. So uh, and there's, so there's a um, ductility associated with the coating itself. T 
typically the coatings are extremely well adhered and all of our coatings if the if the substrate itself becomes plastically deformed then we're going to we're going to have some failure points at where that substrate is failing itself um, because while while we we can't make the substrate we can enhance the substrate surface properties uh, we if the substrate fails then the coating is going to fail along with it from an adhesion standpoint um, but from a ductility perspective the, the adhesion strength is so good that uh, as long as the deformation is uh, is plastic or elastic, then we're, we're fine. Andy, any special um, pretreatment required to, to do this process? Are you operating in a vacuum or inert gas? Do I require um, a super smooth surface, a lap surface perhaps before applying this? No, I mean, the, the most important thing is you have a clean surface. So about half our work goes into making sure that the surface is prepped and, and clean, all right? So uh, once you've accomplished that, we can apply to a mirror, for, a mirror finish or we can do a, a textured surface. Uh, Tom, tell me a bit about lubricity because in lubricity in the, you know, the old school Millwright in me says lubricity is sintered bronze, basically. You know, I heat it up and I drop in a pan of oil and essentially, you know, half an hour later, I'm ready to go. Are, are you, are, is lubricity a matter of trying to get a lubricant to basically reside in the coating or is, is it a nature of the coating itself? So we're really taking advantage of the material properties of the coating itself. So uh, one of our projects with the with the army is really defined as a durable solid lubricant, and so this is this uh, lubrication. It's a self lubricating coating uh, for carbon based coatings. You can get diamond to reconfigure into graphite and create a tribal film. So the film itself becomes uh, self lubricating, and that tribal film is a durable film uh, that can stay in between those two sliding surfaces. So rather than taking the engine oil, uh, the engine approach of a highly porous cast iron liner with oil pockets to keep it lubricated, we take the approach of the coating itself, the surface itself is a self-lubricating coating and we get that low friction as a result. Now, something like a service rifle, I can see how something like that would be highly advantageous where uh, a stoppage you know, due to friction, due to, due to dirt ingress like that could be literally a life and life and death situation. Is it, uh, is it, we're, we're still talking about sliding parts, sliding wear in, in cases like that at, at this point with maybe some other factors at play here. There, there are forces involved, there's heat perhaps. It's in, uh, is, how do you measure durability from the coating perspective? Is it number of cycles? Is it, is it done number of mean time between failures, number of hours? How do, how do you know how long it lasts? So that's a great question. And so uh, every application has a different answer, uh, but, but pr primarily you hit on the, on the big ones, right? So we've got cycles uh, before uh, with a rate of uh, wear for the coating. Uh, another one that you, that you hinted at, but didn't mention was abrasive wear, where you get those particulates in sliding pieces and can cause jams. And that's where you talk about a weapon failure, where uh, if you have a wet lubricant that collects dust and sand and things like that, uh, then those types of things that enhances fouling and, and jam and weapon failure where a self-lubricating coating, none, there's no reason for that dust or grime to stick. And if it does, it's resistant to that wear, that abrasive wear as well. Uh, but cycles, uh, wear rate, those types of things are, are what we look at as metrics. Andy, how about automotive? I know that um, in motorsports in particular, where it's about optimization, you've got to squeeze every horsepower you can, squeeze all the efficiency you can. We're seeing advanced coatings as being now standard on parts like pistons, for example. Uh, piston skirts is a place where, I mean, skirts are minimal in surface area now compared to, to times past. I've got, a, I've got a NASCAR piston out of a Jimmy Johnson engine on my desk, and I'm, other than the, the, the lands for the, uh, the ring grooves, there's almost no structure there at all. So it's, it, coatings appear to be an integral part of the design process. I mean, how much can you get 
in terms of if you use advanced coatings like yours on parts like this? Are we looking at a quantum improvement? Can you find a horsepower, five horsepower? How do you know if you're winning? You can. In fact, uh, Tom and I worked on a project with a large Japanese uh, manufacturer for a number of years. And it, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we achieved a 2% improvement of fuel efficiency by coating the cylinder liner. 2%? That much? Yeah, that was correct. Wow. So there is, there's still some room there, although the world's kind of going to batteries now. But, uh, you're right. Most of the engines are, are finding uh, our kind of coatings. Yeah. What you mentioned cylinder coatings, the example here. I mean, the originally the early 70s of GM, the the next big thing was going to be um, silicon plasma spray inside soft aluminum cylinders and then hone them to size. Uh, that was a notable failure at General Motors in, in mass production applications. Porsche took that technology, ran with it, and made it work at that point. Is there a natural opportunity here? I mean, basically, if you're going to go in there and you're going to spray a soft substrate to form your cylinder in the first place, why not put your coating in there? Right. And that's what that's, we are doing that. We have a number of customers, uh, different places around the world where we're still developing it and, and really more to diesel engine type applications where the cylinder liners are, are installed after the fact and they're larger. Um, but like I said, we did have some success on the automotive space uh, and there is room to go. There's room. Uh, we believe that our technology will provide a, a solution and particularly in the diesel space. Uh, Tom, how about the the energy industry? I'm 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 actually thinking process, maybe oil and gas. Uh, there's there's a notable safety issue in things like refinery operations, and we see it a lot in things like valve gear, in particular, uh, um, in erosive wear, uh, valves that bind, valves that stick, basically. And then there have been, um, I mean, OSHA has files, you know, drawers full of them of some fairly fairly expensive and and sometimes life threatening failures caused by this. Applications there. Uh, there are, and there are temperature limitations to all coatings. And so that's where some of these things tie into case, uh, come into play or where limitations may occur. But in general, uh, these critical applications, even in downhole exploration, where you see failures uh, uh, offshore and end up having catastrophic failures as well, these types of coatings uh, have great applications for uh, anti-fouling as well, because there's a very low surface energy, you uh, prevent corrosion, you prevent that fouling, which is often a cause, a root cause for these uh, failures and jamming. Uh, so if you can attack the causes of the problem and understand the application, we can actually design a coding to fit the needs of the application uh, for, your most, for the most critical applications, right? Andrew, in applications where uh, um, a mechanism may be lubricated, does it still make sense to use a coating like yours in an environment which nonetheless has a, a, a liquid lubricant or a grease in there anyway? In some cases, yes. Um, we think, I think we find a little more success where, where they are looking to go without a lubricant. Um, but uh, you can tune the coating to a certain lubricant. So you can get the maximum out of the lubricant by having a certain uh, surface um, that we would develop. Now, in the, uh, in the uh, chemical industry, process industry, and interestingly, I understand in, in rocket engine design as well, lubricant compatibility is a hell of a problem. It's a major problem. So if you could find a way to not have to deal with that, with lubricants at that point, uh, uh, that's a major advantage. Uh, a potential advantage of the coating technology? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think, I think um, in, in a lot of applications, I mean, one application is a medical field where you're actually installing, say, a heart valve or something like this. Whereas you, you really can't put a lubricant into that environment, as you can imagine. Um, and so where we can't have a lubricant, we're a perfect solution for that. Tom, you mentioned downhole on the energy side there. Now that is not uh, an area where th something like this would automatically come to mind. Uh, what's the application downhole? 
Uh, it's the same type of applications where you talk about various valves downhole. Uh, there are applications in terms of well fracturing uh, because there's a very, you can create very thick coatings for uh, resistance to the abrasive wear that happens in that industry as well um, for both for exploration and production. Um, but primarily the operation of those valves um, and uh, it's again sliding parts typically within, but there's also applications just in protecting uh, the pipes itself and production tubulars. When you take a, uh, a standard workover pipe and you compare it to a coated pipe, uh, we've, done, we've done tests with the University of Tulsa to show uh, a uh, enhanced flow factor. You know, if you look at yourself a Moody diagram, we almost look like a glass pipe compared to a, to a, a pipe that's been in the, surf in, in, in the field, just based on a roughness and a surface energy effect, which reduces the number, uh, enhances the flow through, through the pipe and can even reduce the number of wells required to get the same production out of the same field. So when you start talking about an off-field, offshore field, you start talking about huge cost savings through the enhancement of, uh, through the application of the surface enhancement technology like ours. And so I never imagined that industry that uh, the wettability of the surface is is a major effect. That, that That's effect actually even in, in oil and gas. Measurable effect. Andy, a question for the design perspective. The design perspective, um, we design for manufacturability, we design for serviceability also. Uh, in many applications, I've seen aerospace comes to mind right away. In a perfect world, you'd love to be able to bury an actuator or a pump deep inside a structure, seal it up, rivet the wing skin on and walk away. Now, you can't do that. So your options are either you have to put an access panel in at great cost and complexity, or you, you may pack it with a lubricant or something which is designed to have a very long service life as long as the expected service life of the unit and then swap it out complete down there. Is it possible to use a hard coding or advanced coding strategy as a way to liberate the need, for example, to go in there and service an assembly or a component on that schedule? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the goal, particularly that Tom was referring to on downhole. Uh, we've had projects where we've had rod wear, let's say, you know, from a sucker rod rubbing up and down on a pipe. Well, it's in a specific location. And if we can coat that part, you can extend a service life and not have to pull that whole string out. So, you know, we go, maybe the well's running six months, 10 months longer, whatever, a year longer, um, maybe indefinitely because we've eliminated that issue and all that work that requires to go down and do that one thing. So that's a similar, that's kind of an extreme case because there's no service panel, you know, a mile below the earth. So, Tom, a question about compatibility. I've got to throw this out there. That on, on one extreme, you've got perhaps the chemical industry and maybe they're working with boranes, fluorides. Another extreme, perhaps you have a water treatment plant, it's potable water at this point. What is coming off the coating as the sliding surfaces wear? Something must be coming off. Uh, so our coatings have been used, our types of coatings are actually already approved, FDA approved for surgical implants and things like this. So in terms of a biocompatibility of a uh, uh, environmentally benign solution, our, our, our coating technology primarily is using chemicals and using elements that are uh, safe for human consumption. Uh, and and uh, have no problems being in and around the human body. Referring back to your last question, James, when we have these complex geometries and these hidden hidden holes, one of the things for this hollow cathode technology that really is kind of the next phase, the next generation uh, of coating technology, by creates this very dense plasma for for the application process. And uh, traditional coating limitations are, are oftentimes line of sight, whether it's, if it's a plasma spray or if it's a PVD coating. Right. If if the source can't see the substrate, then it doesn't get coated. Um, but the this the the complex the the intensity of our process and the advantage of the hollow cathode, which is often seen as a parasitic problem, 
we harness that power to kind of get this next generation coding technology so we can coat these very complex um, geometries. I, I, I kind of make the analogy to these advanced manufacturing technologies where now with 3D printing, you can uh, make things that you couldn't previously machine, right? And so there's a lot of advancement going on in that field. Well, uh, with our technology, you can coat things that you couldn't previously coat. And so you can protect, you can protect services that previously you didn't have access to. Uh, with very durable uh, corrosion resistant uh, coatings. So that 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 kind of design for lifetime, uh, our technology really enhances and, and coating service technologies in a whole, you can actually start designing uh, for a longer service life by taking advantage of the full suite of, of, of coating service enhancements that are out there. Andy, a hollow cathode, we talked about it. It's it's unique technology. I mean, I'm a sputtering guy, basically. I want to slam a beam of electrons into a heavy metal target and all the stuff that flies off, some of it's going to fall onto my part and I'm going to be happy. What what? How does hollow cathode work? <laughs> well, hollow, hollow cathode, we didn't invent a hollow cathode. That's uh, Mother Nature did that. But it's really an electron that's oscillating across parallel surfaces on its way uh, back home. And so... Uh, in the right conditions, um, in the right uh, vacuum level, in the right you know pressures, and there in uh, different things with different chemistry, we can get we can control the hollow cathode such that it's oscillating back and forth across parallel plates or circles or discs, um, and emerging the whole surface in a very dense plasma. And you're getting a lot of free energy there because that electron, instead of finding a direct path, as in your example, it has a tetuous, you know, very tough path back to uh, you know back to the returning to the circuit and so it, it's just it's just really our work was more around how to control it because if you talk to people in this industry and you say a hollow cathode like oh my goodness i spent my career avoiding them um we were crazy enough to to think we could capture it and and to be honest that's the core of what we do at, at duralar is controlling that act of nature so is this a molecular beam process? I mean, are you are those electrons actually knocking something off the the, the electrodes and then carrying it to the part? What, what's how do you actually get the deposition? Well, it is, I would like to pass that back to Tom because he's much more articulate with a PhD in this particular process. <laughs> so, so we with the hollow cathode, we're ionizing the gas, and so whether it's a metal-containing precursor, a carbon-containing precursor, whatever, if you can, if you can create it as a, uh, if you can volatilize it and get it in the gas phase, then this type of hollow cathode plasma will ionize it. You know, there's a lot of actually research being done on hollow cathode PVD where it's not necessarily designed for coating these complex surfaces, but it's designed for higher rates because they'll use a cylindrical target and sputter the ID uh, and then uh, use that as a source material. So hollow cathodes are being, uh, you know, I feel like we're on the leading edge, but they're starting to make their way into controllable processes uh, for various for various applications. We particularly harness it as the ionization of the gas and then creating the coatings from those ionized gas. So we get a positive ion and a negatively negatively biased surface, and we accelerate that uh, that positive ion into uh, our our the part that we're trying to coat, and that uh, is how we that's the building blocks for for the technology. Now, if you were to explain that to an amateur like me, would you would, would I characterize this as an electrostatic deposition process, or is there a kinetic energy effect? Are you slamming these these things into the surface? Oh, there's there's definitely uh, a kinetic energy effect. I mean, we're talking you know seventeen thousand six hundred kilometers a second type velocity. These are tiny little 
uh, you know, we're building this, you know, an, an ion at a time. So a molecular ion at a time, whether it's, uh, uh, so they're very small rocks, but uh, these things are coming in and that, that kinetic energy or that, so we basically take a potential energy, turn it into a kinetic energy, which gets released, gets modified again into a chemical uh, chemical uh, reaction and often displaced as a thermal energy. So that, or dissipated as a thermal energy. So we're, we're taking, we're, we're converting that whole chain uh, from, from potential electric to, uh, kinetic and back to chemical and thermal. So um, this is uh, a unique process, uh, but it, it's not necessarily unique to uh, our process. You know, PECVD, plasma enhanced chemical vapor deposition, we're in that category. Uh, and this technology is, is uses, you know, takes advantage of chemistry as well as the energetics uh, to kind of promote energy that, other, that otherwise would have to be happening at, you know, 1100, 1200 degrees C. So it allows us to run complex chemistry at much lower temperatures. Andy, we've been talking about technologies here which are very similar to technologies that are commonly used in the cutting tool industry. Application there? Some, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so th there's applications in some cutting tools. Um, most of that's done through some form of PVD today with a metal inner layer. Um, we, we're looking at that market, but um, we've only had some, some inroads into the cutting tools. Oh, one last question. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it at both of you at this point. Uh, if you're a mechanical engineer, you're designing mechanisms now, today, in the future, is this a time to start thinking about things like advanced coatings earlier in the design phase? Or is this something that, that you think that you can use your bag of tricks to sort of, of solve a problem, you know, later in the process? Tom? So there's a little bit of both. We see it on both ends, but I think now is a time, the technology in general, the, the options out there, uh, including us, really allow for a thoughtful design from first principles, right? As you're getting in there, as you're looking at the, the, the loads, the surface, the wear life that you're trying to achieve, the surface life you're trying to achieve, um, and the, the uh, aggressive nature of the application, taking these things into account, the service technologies and service enhancements and coatings really are at a point where they should be considered as a design principle and included in the design phase. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go eventually solve a problem. There are lots of problems out there where uh, you can add a coding later on. Um, but the most the critical successes and the, and the design for longevity with codings in, in mind and service enhancement technology in, in mind, I think that's where engineers today uh, are starting to really take advantage of the technology. I, I would agree with, with Tom. I, I think the earlier you start, I think any design engineer today really needs to be up to speed with the available technology on coatings because I think they, they can avoid a lot of issues in the design phase. And then they don't have to come back and address it later. Andrew Tutto, Dr. Tom Casserly, Duralard Technologies, thanks for joining me on the program today. And thank you for joining us on Manufacturing the Future. See you next time.